Hey everybody, how is it going? You are listening to Let's Be Real and my name is Erica Connor and we are going to jump right in today because I'm really excited about what it is that we're going to talk about. So if you haven't been with us since the new year, we are reading the Bible <laughs> through the year, right? But without a plan really because I don't do well with that big of plans. Like that's just daunting and overwhelming to look at the big long list. I keep repeating myself every week because it is so very true. So every week that uh, we come together on Friday, I give you the next books or book that we're going to be reading for the week. And last week, I threw out Psalms. Psalms being a pretty big book, 150 chapters, in fact, that I decided it's going to take two weeks. Split it up however you want, but we just finished week one, and we are starting week two of reading the book of Psalms. And if I am honest... I'm pretty far behind. <laughs> I have made it to chapter 25, so I kind of have a long way to go. And quite frankly, I've been listening to it, like walking the dog, and I'm just not getting the same out of it when I listen versus when I sit down and read it or if I listen while reading. So I might actually start over and really dedicate myself this week. Somebody do the math for me. 150 chapters over the next seven days. Well, that's like 20 some, 22, <laughs> 21 and a half, 22 chapters a day. Some Psalms are short. I could probably do that. Oh boy. So I've got some catching up to do already and we're only in like the third <laughs> week. Oh boy. This is how, this is how life goes, right? You can start out super motivated, super driven to do really well for a long time. And then you kind of fall off the wagon. It's like dieting. Anyway, what I wanted to talk to you about was actually one of the psalms that I listened to. And I'm reminded about and it's a psalm that I've learned quite a few cool things about is Psalm 22. So I'm wondering if any of you are familiar with Psalm 22 and just how cool Psalm 22 is. So I'm actually going to read the whole chapter. And then you can mark that one off your list for the week if you're joining us. But I'm going to read chapter 22 and then we are going to talk about it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All those who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open with their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men have encircled me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. 
Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and will be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remain and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. There is so much in Psalm 22 that we aren't even going to be able to get to all of it. There's so much I'd like to talk to. So I want to hit some of the bigger points and then give you a really cool part. So Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, how, why have you forsaken me? It starts out with this kind of anguished cry of David, right? He is in a, he's obviously in a bad place. He is suffering. And we see him crying out to God. He's talking not only about himself here, but about the Israelites as a whole. This is kind of a prayer, if you want to think about it. I mean, he starts with, my God, in the midst of all of his anguish and his suffering and the difficulties of his life, which he experienced Quite a few, some of his own making for sure, right? But he really had some big ups and downs, which maybe some of us can relate. But in the midst of this suffering, he acknowledges, my God, you, you are mine. That is who I am crying out to in agony and in suffering. But this is in prayer. He was also speaking for all of God's people. So we see that as he's speaking for himself, as he's speaking for Israelites and for God's people, he has enemies surrounding him. So there's probably quite a bit of fear and just what is going to happen. The unknown, we all like to know what's going to happen, right? We even like it when we can see what's coming in a movie. We don't like the unknown so much. So he's surrounded by enemies that like want his life. His body is in dreadful pain. He doesn't feel like God is near him or hearing him. This is a very common feeling of all believers at one time or another. As we go through suffering, we question like, God, are you here? Like, what in the world? What is going on? Do you hear me? Like, I am unhealthy. I am unwell and I've been praying. I am in pain. All of these things are happening to me. Where are you? My question is, as you start that prayer with, my God. Do you start by acknowledging him in your distress? David doesn't actually lose faith and he doesn't fall into complete hopelessness. We see this by calling on his God. But then he goes on to remember God's past faithfulness to Israel's history. In verses 4 and 5, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried out and they were rescued. This is kind of, I think, maybe a good template or a good reminder in these places of pain and of suffering. Cry out 
to God, acknowledge him and who he is, share what you're thinking, share what you're feeling, and then remember his past faithfulness, not only in your life, but in others. David is reflecting on in our fathers, like in the past, our family. And then he remembers God's care for his own life when he talks about, so we're looking at verses 9 and 10 where he says, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. He's reflecting back on the past faithfulness of God in his family, in his descendants, in his own life. So this is a great way to pray, to refocus our thoughts back on past faithfulness in our own lives, in the people around us. It helps us to refocus. And then we go on to see David's hope in earnest prayer for his present relief. He has vented a little bit. He has remembered God's faithfulness in the past and in his own life. And now he says, but Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid in verse 19. We must never stop praying even in our deepest distress. Now, this is kind of the first part of Psalm 22, just seeing the heart and the mind of David and how he cries out. It really is a great way to pray, to refocus, to call on the Lord. It can be very difficult in suffering to come before the Lord. I don't know about you, but I think for most people, but for sure with me, When I am struggling, when I'm in pain, I retreat. I kind of keep it to myself. I maybe stop going out as much or I don't really talk to people about it. I keep it to myself and I keep it in my head. And I think it is the work of the devil sometimes because that's where I stew over it. That's where I hang on to it. That's where I replay it, replay the words, try to think of better ways that I could have done it. But the truth is, is it's over. Like I can't redo what was said. So how do I move forward? And instead of staying stuck in my head, I really need to just pour it out to God. Acknowledge who he is and his faithfulness, and it will be something to help remind me and encourage me and revitalize that hope that I know that I have in him. Jesus knew this psalm, you guys. That's what's so cool. Psalm 22 is a psalm. He would have known all the scripture when he walked here on earth, right? But it's a psalm that he knew. He knew this so well that this is the psalm that he quotes on the cross. I have at times wondered, like, did God just really put Jesus on the cross and forsake him and, like, walk away? Because Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the beginning of Psalm 22. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross because all of those around would have known it. They would have heard him begin it and been like, oh my gosh, that's this psalm. It says all of these things. And it starts out as this cry of David, right, that everyone can relate to. But the second half of Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. It is predicting crucifixion. The crucifixion of Christ. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. This was something that they didn't know. Like they would not have understood all of these words and what they fully meant until this happened. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open, their mouths wide against me. 
I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and you lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is that prophecy. This is the telling of Jesus's crucifixion. We see hints throughout the Old Testament of the plan of Jesus, the plan that God has set forward. It's kind of hidden in plain sight. Never comes out and says it specifically And that's for a particular reason, which maybe we'll get into in the future. But there are just hints so that when the time comes like this at the crucifixion, his followers, his believers, the Hebrew historians, those that know the word of God can put all the pieces together. This is the son of God. He is fulfilling this prophecy and this is rooted And this is declared in so many places, but we see the picture of crucifixion here in Psalm 22. One, I think that is cool enough all by itself. I find the fulfilled prophecies like outstanding. What are the odds? There aren't any, right? Like this is the son of God. There are so many promises and prophecies of the Old Testament that are all fulfilled in him. I actually don't know the number off the top of my head, but I know that it's huge. And it cannot be ignored. And this is a huge one. And the fact that, let's say, a thousand years before the crucifixion happened, David writes and pens this psalm is really exciting to me. And what it reminds me of is that God has such a huge picture, such a huge plan. He sees it all. He plans it all. And it is easy to forget that in the midst of, of our little lives that are full of suffering, that are full of pain and difficulty, but also full of great love and joy. That sometimes in the midst of the great love and the joy we take for granted that it's from him, we just enjoy it. And that in the suffering, at times we just want to turn away, be like, where are you, God? How can this happen? David reminds us that this is part of the Christian life. This happens. He turns the second half of Psalm 22 into great praise. I challenge you to read over that and really meditate that praise that he gives even in the midst of suffering and really make sure that we hear where his faith and his hope is rooted to the point where he's going to tell everyone about God's name. That even though we go through difficulties, by stepping back and seeing the big plan, we can share the story of God, the things that he has done to the next generation it talks about right at the end of 22. It makes me think of the story of Joseph. I love the story of Joseph. And I mean, have you seen the Prince of Egypt, (laughs) the Disney version? It's so good. It's all so good. But it's a story that really makes me sit back and reflect on the greatness and the bigness, I don't know if that's a word, of God and how he has such a huge story and such a huge plan that he does so much work behind the scenes and setting things up. It puts me in awe. He puts the words 
of crucifixion and prophecy into David super early for him to write because he knows way down the road he's going to fulfill what he's telling David to write, that this is what's necessary and he has a plan. And it's a good one. It is the best one. And how awesome is it that we get to turn around and look back with the clarity, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, to see this plan unfold. I hope that this reality really just puts you in a place of awe of our God today. There is something else that really, really stands out to me about Psalm 22 that puts me at total awe. So from what we were just talking about, the plan of God and how he works out these huge plans behind the scenes and that we don't always get to see them. And in the midst of them, sometimes it feels like he isn't present, but he is and he is so faithful. Okay, so this is the nature side of me, the farmer, the outside person geeking out right now, but the person who absolutely loves the cool hidden gems of scripture. So there is something in um, Jewish hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is the word for the interpretation of scripture, like the process of it interpreting scripture. And in Jewish hermeneutics, so this is Old Testament, right? So it's written in Hebrew. There is something called a remez. And a remez is a hidden message where there's a deeper meaning. There's like um, a treasure that's found just below the surface or behind the words, right? It's something that you realize, oh, that's what he means. Or, oh, I get it now, right? It's a pun almost, but way deeper than a pun. It's a deep metaphor with a very special hidden meaning. So, There is a very interesting remez in Psalm 22, verse 6. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. It's kind of weird. Why would you call yourself, but I'm a worm? Like some, I went on Wikipedia, which is really kind of foolish. And they're like, it's because it hides in the dark under the ground. Like, what does that have to do with it? anything. This is part of the prophetic psalm of the cross of Jesus. Jesus was certainly a man when he was on the cross, but so what does the psalmist mean here when he says, but I am a worm? So what we do know is that the Hebrew word for a worm, a normal everyday, call it an earthworm if you want, is ramah, and that's defined as a maggot or a worm. Oh, I hate maggots. They're just so gross. Um, Sidebar. However, in verse 6, the word for worm that is used here is actually the word tola. So it's T-O-W-L-A when it's transliterated into English words. Otherwise, it's also said tola-ath. So Strong's Dictionary actually defines tola as a maggot or as the crimson grub. So the crimson grub is also defined as it's used only in the connection of the color from it and closed were dyed therewith, the crimson grub. So there's a particular worm some or grub, some recall the tola worm, that is being used in this verse in, in 22.6. It's not the normal everyday worm, rima. it's actually tola. So this is the scarlet crimson grub, if you will. So this is a crimson or scarlet grub that is very common to the Middle East that time, especially predominantly in Israel. So, I mean, scarlet crimson, color of blood. It's a very deep blackish red. And this has a very 
significant part to play in this story. So the Ramez, the hidden special treasure, is actually hidden in the life, or it's about the life cycle of this crimson grub, this crimson worm, the Tola worm. So it looks more like a grub than a worm, so it's going to be a little bit more short. It's going to be fat, maybe oval, and it has a very awesome life cycle that points to the work of Jesus on the cross. So when the female crimson worm is ready to lay her eggs, which happens only one time in her life, she climbs up a tree or a fence and she attaches herself to it. And by attaching herself to that wood, she does that by forming a crimson shell around herself. So almost think butterfly, chrysalis, or caterpillar to butterfly, right? Where they make a cocoon, a chrysalis. This is a hard red shell that surrounds them, that attaches them to the tree. It's so hard that if you were to pull and rip it off of the tree, it would actually kill the worm. It's connected to them. So the female worm, she's underneath her protective shell. She's hanging out. She's starting to lay her eggs underneath her body. So the larvae hatch, and they actually stay under the mom and under the shell as they hatch and begin to grow. So these baby worms, they actually feed on the living mother for three days because what other food source do they have at the beginning? As this mother worm dies, her body excretes this crimson or the scarlet dye that um, was so common in the Middle East. And it would actually stain the wood and it would stain the baby worms. So then those baby worms actually remain crimson colored for the rest of their life. So on day four... This is a little crazy, right? So on day four, she is dead. The red has stained the wood. The babies are now stained red. She kind of starts to shrivel up, maybe, if you want to say it. Her tail, which is pointed down, pulls up into her head, and it forms a heart-shaped body on the tree. At this point, she is no longer crimson, but has turned into a snow-white wax. It looks like a patch of wool on a tree or on the fence or whatever it is. And then it begins to flake off and it drops to the ground looking like snow. And the word snow in Hebrew sounds a lot like manna. Isaiah 1.8 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, which is the root word for tola'ah, they shall be as white as snow. They shall be like red crimson. They shall be as wool. Now, come on. (laughs) Are you kidding me? So in biblical times, that red dye excreted from the crimson worm, it was used in the high priest's robe, you guys. And it was probably used, we don't know for sure, for the ram skins that were dyed red for in the covering in the tabernacle when it was in the wilderness. And that worm and its dye is still used today. The worm's body in the shell, while it's still red and attached to the tree, they're scraped off and they're used to make what's called royal red dye. The waxy material is used to make high quality shellac in the Middle East, right, as like a wood preserver. Um, And the remains of a crimson worm, what's left over, are also used in medicine to help regulate the human heart. So what the heck, Tola worm? What a picture I'm sure this wasn't lost on you. What a picture and prophecy put forth in this one verse, in this one word, in this particular worm and grub. So was Jesus a crimson worm on the cross? Well, yeah, metaphorically, he absolutely was. And we see this 
talked about in all different ways all throughout scripture. It is the coolest thing. See, this is me excited geeking out. A worm created by God living in the region where all of this is happening that is already utilized in everyday life that everybody knows about. We don't. It's lost on us. How many of us pluck worms off trees to make our own dye? Not only any dye, but a specific dye in their culture that was used for their high priest's robe. Jesus, our high priest, a mother who goes and puts herself on a tree, sacrificing herself for the life of her children, who are now marked in a way that identifies them as Tola worms. They are red. It is unmistakable. She dies, but she leaves a mark on her children, on that tree, for everyone to see, and turns white as snow. Are you kidding me? If you weren't at awe with the prophecy part of Psalm 22, I really hope you're at awe right now because I have goosebumps that I've given myself that the Holy Spirit is like, my name is declared. The glory of God is declared in his creation. I will never and can't ever get tired of seeing the amazing beauty and the invisible natures and qualities of God in nature. We just have to look for them. And I also hope that this is a really great challenge and like piques your interest like, wait, what other things like this in the Bible am I missing because I don't know these small words that make a huge impact, that mean something huge. You guys, especially with reading the Old Testament, but even in the New There is so much we miss reading it in English and not understanding the history and the context and knowing what the hearers of the word would have known at the time. Because this is the kind of stuff that I find ridiculously exciting about God, about how big he is. He created that worm way before David even comes on the scene to write this psalm. I leave you with this today, hoping and encouraging to you to just sit in a place of awe of how big our God is. To remember that he is always near, no matter what the circumstances, as a challenge to reflect on his faithfulness in our life when things get tough to praise him in the midst of it, and to share his good news after, during, always, but to praise him and to stand in awe. What else can we really do? 